You're a failure. And that's okay. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Alicia. And, and we're, we're failures, failures too. too. We take a walk back through people's failures and relive the mistakes they made so we all can have more clarity on how to be a better human. Welcome to the 2020 Perspective, where we show you how to be a successful failure. Today, we are speaking with someone we've mentioned on the podcast a few episodes back. That's the magic of talking about failure. Everyone has their own stories to tell, and you may not know how many failures someone waited through to get to their now success. What is blowing my mind is that when I came across this individual, she was someone who was described as a rock star professor. But as we will discover, her self-described failure was failing to teach students how to learn during her first five years of being a college professor. And now she's the vice president of learning at edX, a global online teaching and learning platform founded by Harvard and MIT. Welcome to the 2020 Perspective, Nina Huntman. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. So where do you want to start? Lead us through your failure. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll start at the beginning. Okay. Beginning's <laughs> a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I was uh, an early career college professor, so excited to have a teaching gig <laughs> uh, that paid more than a graduate student. And um, uh, in my field, communication, there's a foundational course that like all students have to take. Um, mm -hmm. Intro to media, introduction to mass communication, I mean, essentially something similar to that. And okay. as a junior faculty member, uh, that was the main course that I was um, subscribed to teach. So mm -hmm. this course taken by students um, as an elective, taken by students who are interested in a major, it's a really, tends to be quite large and broad and very survey. Um, but what's really important is that it is a foundational course for going on in the major. And so any student who's going to go into journalism or advertising mm -hmm. or video production um, or public relations, like they had to take this course. So it's like a communications 101. Yeah. And I won't quibble about discipline descriptions, but let's just go with that. Yeah. It's a communications okay, right. 101. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it, is it a weed out type course? Because I remember I started in mass communication at, um, at LSU and it was this huge room with, you know, like 500 people and it, they just, they played mind games with you to, um, you know, really just to kind of weed you out if this is really what you wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, a, a weed out course is somewhat controversial because that's, you know, really pushing to have students fail, right? Like that's an interesting uh, approach to mm -hmm. thinking about teaching students. Like we're, pur we're purposefully creating a course that you don't in fact continue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think part of the way in which courses like that work is um, it's introducing students to what would it actually mean to be this when you grow up? <laughs> and are you sure this is the field that you want to be involved in? And so it can be as much as a weeding out as it could actually be um, a bit of a honeypot and attract students to, to a major. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was... It's a more positive way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and oftentimes it would be a course that was taught to 40, 60, 100 or at some large universities, 500 students at a time. Wow. I was at institutions mm -hmm. where like the largest class I ever had in this was about 120. The first time you teach a course, you spend a lot of time preparing for it. I would say for every hour you're in the classroom, 
you spend at least three hours preparing. And so, um, you know, I say this because in some ways I want to defend my failure. I spent a lot of time creating this class. Like, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was timely, it was relevant, that we were talking about issues in the media that were happening, you know, not five years ago, but like last month, last week, you know, so uh -huh. I spent a lot of time preparing this course. And I did love the course um, because it really touches on all these major concepts and ways of thinking for um, a broad discipline of communication or media. And it also tended to be taken by students who either were in their first or second year of college. You know, I, I hope what I'm painting here is this was like a delight. I mean, it was a lot of work, but I, I loved teaching this course. Okay. Um, I got to use all these, you know, examples from the media. And I would often say about um, about teaching survey courses, particularly this foundational one, is you know how fun is it that you get to study television for credit? Um, but what we what we were teaching students was not just how to watch television, um, but very critically how to think about the media in ways that if you're either going to be making media in your career, you're going to become a journalist, work in advertising, a film producer. Or certainly, if you're going to be consuming it, which we all do, mm -hmm. absolutely important foundational concepts to understand about how media is made so that you can actually be a more critical consumer. So this sounds like it sounds like a recipe for success. You have people who want to learn. You are super jazzed to teach it. A lot of people got to take it. And it's relevant, timely, and practical. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> and and for five years, as far as I was concerned, nothing was going wrong. In fact, <laughs> everything was going right. Um, I had a high course evaluations. Students loved the course and, and me. Um, I had oversubscribed. And so there were wait lists to get into the class. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I heard, because of course I never looked, but apparently on Rate My Professor, uh, for these courses <laughs> in particular, there were a lot of very um, a very um, lovely comments about, about my passion and how interesting the course is and so forth. So, you know, in the world of um, feedback, I had so much good feedback that mm -hmm. things were going really, really well. Okay. All right. So things are great. Five years later, then what? It was a foundational course, as I said. But as I became a more senior faculty member, I started to take on teaching more upper division courses. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that for students who were a major and had taken this foundational course, I would be seeing them again in a year or two in a more upper division course. And the way that a good curriculum is created is that that foundational um, teaching and learning is necessary to scaffold what you're going to learn later, right? Right. right. You take um, the 301 after you've taken the 101 and the 201. Right. And if 301 is designed correctly, 301 requires you to do have understood what was taught in 101 and in 201. Right. Yeah. So I started to see um, students again, which is also delightful to have students that you taught, you know, in their freshman year or their sophomore year coming back into your classrooms is, is really nice. Um, and that was that was great. I was really looking forward to teaching these upper division courses. I start to realize, honestly, in one of the first upper division courses where I had enough of the same students back again, so I had enough repeat customers, if you will, in my upper division course who were struggling with the fundamentals. 
They were struggling to remember or be able to apply some of the fundamental concepts that I had taught in the first course. And this was even true of the good students, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? This was true of the students who had gotten A's and B's in my foundational course um, were coming into the upper division course as if they had never taken who, the first Who taught one. these students? I they know. didn't teach them anything. <laughs> I know. So how were you able, how were they demonstrating that they were not understanding the fundamentals? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about this one particular moment where I realized that something had been going um, horribly wrong after five years of teaching. So I asked a question of the class um, about something that has to do with the way in which media um, is financed, right? Um, you have advertising-based media, and then you have um, subscription-based media, and then in fact, you have publicly funded media, like your NPRs and so forth. Subscriptions would be like your Netflix, and then advertising-based would be like broadcast networks like ABC. So um, fundamental to understanding how media is funded and I was asking a question of the class, it's like, what are the differences between these? And I'm getting crickets. Now, getting crickets when you're in front of a class of students and ask a question, like, that's normal, right? One of the first things I learned early on in my teaching career is that you gotta sit with the silence. <laughs> because <laughs> mm -hmm. eventually, the students get super uncomfortable with the silence and, and they'll speak up. But nobody was speaking up. So I started looking into the eyes of my previous students especially the ones who, again, were the quote unquote good students who had done well. And I'm like, with my eyes, I'm saying, you know this, mm -hmm. you need to speak up. And the eyes were like staring at the desk, looking anywhere else but me. <laughs> and so I was bold. And it's always really difficult to call students out who don't want to speak because it creates, you know, a, a lot of um, fear, frankly, in them. And in some ways, it creates a bit of trepidation in the instructor, too, because oh, you yeah. know you're oh, putting yeah. them on the spot. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, but nobody wants that, right? Like, nobody wants that. Yeah. Yeah. In the adult setting, too, with, you know, with a, facilitating a workshop or something, same thing. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but I called on, I called on a, a previous good student and I asked her, I was like, you know the answer to this, like tell the class. And she looks at me and, and like the blood drained from her face right? <laughs> <laughs> and her eyes get super big. And it's exactly the nightmare scenario where I have just like called her out in a horrible way. And, and I almost like feel what she's feeling. Um, and I realized that she doesn't know the answer. And I pick up on that cue and I quickly pivot, right? And I okay. laugh, I, you know, I don't know, I laugh it off okay, or something. recovery, I mean, recovery. Yeah, I try cool. to, right? And then essentially I just tell the students <laughs> the answer. But wow, that stuck with me. Um, and I think the heightened emotion that was felt both by myself and by her, like really like underscored, uh, underscored that moment. And, and then, of course, I had lots of other signals where they were just getting questions wrong on, you know, quizzes and, and getting understanding and describing concepts and essays incorrectly. Um, and so that one moment really sticks out in my mind, but it was supported by other evidence that students were not mm -hmm. recalling the concept they had, concepts they had learned in the earlier, earlier course. 
So, so lead me through kind of like the processing that you had in that moment, the, the feelings that you're trying to kind of reconcile. You, you have this contradictory evidence. One may say a red flag. How, like what, what's, your, what's your mental machinery that's going on? Yeah, I, I am being so um, vulnerable right now, but I recognize the absolute importance of these moments and sharing them. And I, and I commend, in fact, this podcast for, for asking folks to do this. But my first reaction was actually to blame the students. Uh -huh. And I am embarrassed to admit that. I feel, right, like my first reaction was like, they're not paying attention. They're not doing their homework. You know, they're, uh -huh. they're lazy. That was my first instinct. And, um, and as I say, like I wear that almost like shamefully now that that was my first instinct. But then the preponderance of evidence, especially because, you know, and I will in many ways like rely upon this student who was so outstanding in the previous, you know, um, experience teaching her really did not allow me to put the blame on the students. Like it was just not possible. It was cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. to, to, to use those usual lazy, I would argue, excuses for bad teaching is to say it's the student's fault. Mm -hmm. So I, I couldn't turn away from, from, from that. Um, okay. But that was my first, I will admit, that was my first response. Um, but then quickly, to my defense. You had uh, a second hypothesis. I had a second hypothesis. To my quick, uh, I, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, very quickly after that, I thought, okay, come on now. <laughs> uh, you know, why is this the case? Has it just been a really long time? You know, there is a thing, uh, there's a real thing called the forgetting curve. We uh -huh. all experience the forgetting curve. Unless you apply material, you know, use the use the concept in, in a frequent or, or you know basis, you'll forget it. Mm -hmm. And so certainly that is at play. Um, but it hadn't been that long, and and even with something like the forgetting curve being a factor, that, as I would later learn, is a fundamental um, friction that teachers have to grapple with. You, know, you have to grapple with the fact that indeed students are likely to forget what you teach if you don't teach it well. Let's take a quick break. Do you want to bring the 2020 perspective insights to your team, community group, or company? This season, we're opening the door to talk with you about your failures and engage in a dialogue with the community that matters to you. For this season only, we're running a special offer called the Failure to Findings Talk, where we can help you learn from failure and build a culture around being a successful failure. Reach out to us at hello at the2020perspective.com and let us know you're interested in the Failure to Findings Talk. Again, that's hello at the2020perspective.com. Let's fail out loud together. And now back to the failure. So what you just described there, that for forgetting curve and, and the friction, that's something that I think it's really easy to ignore as a reality when you're in the moment. And especially for like a short period of like a training or a workshop or a seminar, or even a just a semester long class, you could say, well, if they pass the test at the end of the year, they've learned it. And nobody seems to care what happens afterwards. What I what I started to think through was, well, hold on. I don't just want her to remember 
this material from her a course she took her freshman year to one she's now taking her sophomore or junior year like i want her to remember these concepts in her career like mm. later on in life um as a citizen of the world and so if i'm not able to do that within a two-year span how am i going to have any impact or influence on her throughout the rest of her professional and personal development. And that was, you know, I, I had to come through to that over time. But when I sat with that, I realized, hold on, that is literally fundamentally what it means to be a teacher. So as you got to this, this realization and you're processing it and you say you sat with it, how were you sitting with it? How, and how long were you, these thoughts marinating in your head and asking yourself these questions? What did it look like and how long did this go on? So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing students again after having taught them the first time, but I also, and I don't even remember what brought me to the Center for Teaching and Learning but I was engaging with an organization on campus that was literally established to help faculty get better at teaching and learning. But I was engaging with the folks there and their resources and their workshops and starting to get exposed to, <laughs> it sounds so funny in the background or in retrospect, getting exposed to an entire field of research about how to effectively <laughs> teach. <laughs> I mean, this is the dirty secret, although I wouldn't say it's a secret really anymore, that many, most college professors whose core job is to teach are never trained in how to do it well. My own training, my own training in becoming a teacher was mostly to watch my elders, right? Um, as a graduate student, I sat in classes as a TA and watched a professor teach students. And so I, I picked up on that. I was given uh, teaching assistant positions in which I just mimicked what I saw around me. Um, I remember taking literally a half day workshop before I was to be a teaching assistant for the first time in, in my graduate program in how to teach. and. In my memory, all I actually remember, talk about takeaways and forgetting curve, the only thing I remember is that what had to be in my syllabus and that as a female professor, I probably want students to call me doctor. Interesting. Those are the two takeaways from the half day learn how to teach for the rest of your profession tutorial. I'm mind blown right now because I guess I've never thought about this before. I've never thought about, you know, all the professors that I've that I've sat in their classrooms before and I've learned from them or engaged in conversation, whatever, that they have not had this formal understanding of how to teach and facilitate. Like that's just I had no idea. Yeah. Um, the, the good news on that is that it has become uh, increasingly a known problem. And now graduate right. programs, far more than when I was a graduate student, uh, graduate programs do integrate how to teach 
and obviously discipline specific because teaching how to teach important, but it's particularly important in a, in a subject, right? And so if you think about K through 12, to become a math teacher, you have to learn particular techniques for teaching math as opposed to an English teacher. They're fundamentals, but you know, it's discipline specific. So some of the burden of this um, does fall on any graduate program, but there's a specific burden on the discipline to teach their graduate students whose jobs are likely to be largely teaching how to do it for their discipline. Most of the focus of graduate programs is teaching graduate students how to do research, right? And um, the reality of most teaching jobs is that, sure, you have to do research, but particularly for the schools that I was a professor, the majority of my actual day-to-day -day work was teaching students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like we could, we could wax poetic about some of the endemic problems in the uh, higher education realm, you know, the the discon like the fact that they're teaching graduate students how to research, which bring more notoriety to an organization or, or fame. And you might get a rock star researcher who then generates a ton of income for the school, which draws more students, but who cares about the education because it's really a prestige business. Um, but you know, that's, that's a conversation for another time. I want to go back to the story of you're at the center for teaching, uh, in excellence and you get exposed to this new field. Uh, and just rocks your world, like just like it rocked mine and Alicia, like rocking our worlds. Then, then what happened? Like what happened next? So I went on a learning journey, and uh, you know I asked for recommendations of where to start, books to read. You know, true academic, tell me what to read. Um, but that's a way that for me personally, like that is a that's my first my first instinct is to ask for reading recommendations. Um, and so I, you know, I, I got some, some great recommendations of what to read. I also started to go to more of their events, particularly the ones that were around, um, being a better teacher. There was a lecturer who came to campus who was very well known for helping college professors become better teachers. Ken Bain. Ken Bain. And I went to his, uh, his lecture at the institution and bought his book and read it and just started to rethink. I mean, as I was reading his book, I'm like highlighting and tabbing and, you know, dog earing and, and then thinking about how to change my own teaching practice as, as a result. So it wasn't just about learning like the theory behind how students learn, um, very important, but also like I need some immediate implementable, you know, activities to, to start shifting my teaching. Um, and, and it was a process. I mean, I would I would introduce something new in my teaching, but not completely revamp the course because it takes a very long time to create, right. you know, a, right. a, a course. And so it started incrementally, but over time, uh, I added in more and more of evidence-based teaching and learning practice. And in many ways, I joke, I like, you know, feel like I got a, a second degree in <laughs> in teaching and learning by going on that learning journey and, and 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 it was propelled not just by my own reading i mean i was engaging with faculty at my own institution who i thought were really good teachers 
and I was going to events and I was relying upon the staff at the Center for Teaching to, to help guide me, um, I became a student of it. I'm very curious to know and hear, hear about how you felt like, how are you feeling during this learning journey? Because in a sense, you are kind of reinventing the way that you had approached your career. So how was that for you, like, internally? So it was exhilarating. I love being in school. And I think one of the reasons why I went, in to, went on to get three degrees is because I loved being a student. And here I had something, like, I was hyper-motivated in this learning journey, right? I, I had what fell to me a deep responsibility to, to the students that I currently had and all the ones yet to come to get better at this. And that was fantastic motivation. And I also just love learning. Um, and so for me, it was a joyful process. It was difficult when I would think back on all of the really bad teaching decisions that I had made previously. But I think my just general disposition is, you know, learning moment, what, what's, you know, how do I get better? Uh, and I mm-hmm. didn't dwell, didn't dwell too much, you know, upon, upon it. Did you get any external feedback on this kind of professional pivot or, or mindset shift? Like did the student review scores go up or go down or were other people commenting on things? So um, I successfully got tenure and I started shifting my teaching to be more evidence-based and my course evaluations went down. Ooh, (laughs) plot twist. No longer did students describe my courses as fun. Um, You know, sometimes they would say easy in the past, but there was definitely no easy. (laughs) Uh, Students would describe my courses as hard um you you have to do the work mm-hmm. um but also things like hard but fair and you get out of it what you put into it mm. Good old so in there. while the overall score dipped <laughs> right um i felt like they were the best course evaluations that i had ever gotten yeah yeah because you're teaching them that lesson that they're going to that's going to be lasting because the what you put in is what you get out of it and all that's that's real life that's job that translates into career and their future and so learning that lesson now is probably more valuable than you know a fun easy course mm-hmm. that they enjoyed yeah because at the end of the day learning is hard mm-hmm. and it should feel challenging right you don't really learn if you don't feel it and i don't have anything more scientific or brilliant to describe it but i often talk about it that way um, when i am talking to um, educators now is that if your students are not feeling their learning then you're not teaching them and it's it can be everything it can be the frustration you know, their brows are tight, you know, tossing the pencil. Um, it could be the elation of the moment they get it, right? But if it's just all a kind of like breezy, you know, fun time, then they're not learning. And so I think the course evaluations 
reflected, I hope, that I had made things challenging. And only in moments where you're having to literally work, your brain is having to work and you're being challenged, are you learning? Did you get any delayed feedback, like maybe years later when they come in for your higher level courses or maybe even after they graduated? Do you get kind of some feedback that this stuck or was it not positive feedback years later? Yeah, so um, I think the immediate feedback or immediate, like, you know, within a couple of semesters is that I had students who had taken the foundational course that I had revamped over time, who were now in my upper division courses. And when I called on them, they had answers. But yeah, so I, I did get, and this is very anecdotal because I didn't track it, but I stayed in touch. I stay in touch with students in various ways. And I think it's during this time too, where LinkedIn became really, you know, used and popular. And so a lot of my students were connecting with me on LinkedIn. And so in many ways I could see their professional development. And uh, there's this one student who uh, will remain anonymous, but I couldn't be prouder of her because her career, she's a journalist, um, she specifically writes about media industries and their revenue models and how they're breaking and having to retool and, and so forth. She's written fantastic pieces recently about Disney Plus and Netflix strategy. And, you know, my head is huge because I know at least at the beginning of her career, she learned those fundamental things from me. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> that is delayed feedback. Wow, that's good. Yeah, that's a nice, a nice validation for you. A little pat on the back that you had a part in that. That's awesome. This is a wonderful, wonderful story. I mean, do you have any other kind of pearls or, of wisdom or or things you got out of this kind of failure realization, this failure experience that you think would be really interesting to share? Yeah, I, I was thinking about some of the takeaway lessons, particularly um, as I've used them in my position now as VP of Learning at edX. Um, I do a lot of faculty engagement and faculty development um, workshops and so forth with, with uni uh, universities and faculty from around the world. So it's great. You know, I get to talk to people in all different kinds of circumstances and disciplines this concept of assessing, you know, an assessment, and I, and I mean this in two ways. How I was assessing my students' learning. So some of the mistakes that I had been making in my teaching practice is that I wasn't assessing student learning well. Uh, I was using, in some cases, multiple choice um, exams, which have their place. They definitely have their place, but even the way in which I had designed the questions um, and so forth just wasn't authentic learning. It didn't really assess students' learning. So I learned that the, how I was assessing students' learning was flawed. And interestingly, how my performance as a teacher was being assessed was also flawed. Ooh, so spicy. Yeah, it's this. <laughs> It's this uh, two-sided, you know, uh, to story in a way is that course evaluations of teaching are very poor <laughs> mechanisms to assess student learning. And so the way that carries forward, no matter what profession you're in or, or even in your personal life, is that, you know, when you go to either self-assess or ask peers for feedback, it is so important that 
how you're being evaluated reflects what you actually want to measure, right? And um, I think that could be felt in everyday ways where if you ask a colleague for feedback, you don't just say to them like, give me some feedback. Right. Right. <laughs> because they'll be like, oh, you're great. I love you. You're fabulous. <laughs> it's like, okay. No, you want to be really specific, right? You want to think about about that question. That is juicy. And there's so many, there's so many parallels that I'm drawing with um, for me personally, like with my job and even my, my last job, one of the struggles that we had was assessing adult learning um, around, you know, all these different concepts around leadership and, and the old smile sheet, as they call it, which was, did you enjoy this course? Would you recommend it? That's great. And yes, it can be a fun, easy breezy time that we network and have some nice takeaways. But how are we really going to see the objectives from that course, workshop, whatever, reflected in performance change. I mean, it's it's the same thing. And I think it's it's so much harder than people realize. They want to walk in and they want to almost be entertained. And and that's really not the, the case. It's nice to be entertaining, but if it doesn't translate into knowledge transfer, then we haven't done our job. Or they assume that you just pour knowledge into their heads and it's just kind of like a painless you know, download and mm-hmm. learning is, is hard. Like you said, Nina, it's, yeah. it's hard. It's sometimes painful. It's awkward, uncomfortable. And I mean, we don't have to get too topical, but there's a lot of pain going on because people weren't willing to educate themselves appropriately. You know, to, to tie back to the uh, episode in which you mentioned me, um, <laughs> one of the things that is really interesting about game design. And there's so many parallels between game design and learning design. But one of them is that games can be fun. In fact, you know, that's one of the main reasons why I play them. But I don't find games that are easy to be enjoyable. I actually Mm -hmm. want that challenge and that friction. And I want to be pushed right outside of my comfort zone so I have to work at it. And it feels so much more satisfying. That's a very similar principle in learning, right? I had been teaching students the fun, easy, comfortable way. And as a result, they didn't learn. They enjoyed my classes, but you know, again, outcomes weren't met. So I think that, you know, hard does not mean not enjoyable. Hard does not mean you have to hate it. You know, I I certainly didn't didn't want to and, and don't create learning experiences like that. But there is something about pushing your limits, right? In a structured and certainly safe space, safe way, that is incredibly, incredibly rewarding. What did you think about Nina's episode? So first thing is starstruck because she and I collided back at an old job. And the fact that we reconnected because of this podcast is so heartwarming um, Mm -hmm. that I was already impressed to hear her story and how much she's thought about it. Of course, we talk to people who have been a little reflective and learned from it, but her craft and her way of approaching her craft is super enlightening and super motivating. The way that she like broke down her realization, her previous thought patterns, her new thought patterns, how she got to those new thought patterns, 
you know, how are they informed by the context that they're in? Like, that's super deep thinking. Mm -hmm. Super deep. I I totally agree. She's clearly a professor for a reason. She can get (laughs) all up in there. And and I like what you said about her almost like redesigning her thought patterns because Mm -hmm. of this experience. If we could just take how she did that inside of her brain and, like, extract it and then... like just toss it out to other people then everyone would just be on their game a game like all the time you know if they could model their failures the process of overcoming their failures with the same way that she did then i mean everyone would be like wanting failure you know instead of avoiding it and i think i think her her role in her position gave her special context that I think the rest of us mere mortals just wish we could have. I mean, (laughs) teaching in a university, it's a cyclical repeating process. So you're collecting data points in the same manner. You can evaluate them year over year. This isn't just like a a two-month project. This is a multi-year self-discovery process. And Mm -hmm. having the data simply from the, you know, repeat conversations that she's having with her students was, I think, instrumental in her being able to realize and reflect and say, oh snap, they didn't learn anything. I have the data now, now I can do something about it. Yeah, and I I don't know if this is the right term, but I think it is the right term to use here is her emotional agility. For the the reason that you just said is this is a multi-year process. So she was just, you know, chugging along, like doing her thing, teaching, getting great accolades and feedback. And then all of a sudden she hits this point, this wall where what she thought was going, okay, wasn't rocks her world. And then it's not this, it's not this like, okay, well, let me just like go in and, and tweak or fix it and go back to the, the game. It's more about like, let me fix this thing unwire and rewire the way that I've been living my work life and then test it and then continue to test it and keep track of it for the next several years to see if it's really making impact. Mm -hmm. And like that takes a lot of, I think, emotional agility and just stamina, mental, you know, stamina to keep up with that and, and like be dedicated to wanting to see a positive end result. Absolutely. I I think that it takes not only the mental agility, but also the emotional fortitude to be willing to undergo that process. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot, she put, she was so excited. She got such great positive reviews. And then she said, actually, I'm failing. And that, right. that freaking sucks. Like, that's yeah. stupid sucks. Is that yes. everyone's telling you you're doing great, but you think deep down that maybe you're not so great. And being able to face yes. that and then do something about that, like, that's that's emotional fortitude. For sure. You know, whenever, like, okay, maybe you don't do this, but women do this. I do this all the time is I'm trying on different outfits for, you know, dinner or going out or whatever. Not really anymore. But I I ask my friend or I ask, you know, send a picture of myself to my mom or something. I'm like, what do you think about this outfit? And they give me, oh, it looks great or that's really cute or whatever. But deep down, I'm like, ah. I don't really feel comfortable in it or it's not what I'm in the mood for or whatever. It doesn't matter what people say or how much they like it. I know that it's not right for me tonight. So I still have to go back and change. And in a sense, that's harder than just taking that person's, you know, 
validation and moving on with it. And what what Nina was doing is that same thing. Is like she got this these smile sheets with glowing reviews, and that makes you feel all warm and toasty, like you're doing mm-hmm. something right. Mm-hmm. But deep down, she knew because she had that result in her face of her students not knowing what was going on that it still wasn't quite right. It wasn't sitting well with her, and so she mm-hmm. had to go back to the drawing board to do what was going to feel right for her and for her students. Which is, that's pretty incredible. It takes a lot more effort and energy to do that than just to keep moving forward with all the pats on the back, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what would you say is like a a useful thing that we could pick up from Nina or that other people listening could say, huh, I can do this now. I can put this into action. Like, what's a practical? A takeaway for me (laughs) in the (laughs) business world is about feedback and how there is a better way that we can both give and ask for feedback in order to use that information to like really move the needle in a way that's effective for our lives personally and for our work professionally, whether that's, um, you know, getting feedback on or asking, hey, Dan, how did how did you think I presented myself professionally in that, uh, you know, Zoom meeting that we had? And I want you to give me the the real, honest, specific, timely information that's going okay, to help smart me goal. be better, <laughs> right? Well, it's the truth, you know, in a in a less like you know s- structured way. But I think the more that we can incorporate feedback and asking for it and giving it in a smart way, but um, mm-hmm. the more uh, the more likely we are to you know achieve our dreams and our goals and feel good about what we're trying to what we're trying to do. So one of the takeaways for me, I think one of the major turning points in Nina's story was going to the Center for Teaching Excellence and having this whole new world open up to her. And I think all of us have organizations or groups of people or friends that we can tap if we're open to change and willing to be vulnerable. And I think finding those types of organizations or those spaces, those communities, is really what's going to change your bigger picture understanding of the world as you see it. It's putting yourself out there, but to the right place. It's not just like putting yourself out there and seeing what the world throws at you. It's going to Mm -hmm. the place that you are going to get the best feedback that you need to be good at what you do. And Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be hard for some industries to find exactly what that looks like, but I guarantee there's somebody out there who will sit down and help you have some feedback on what you're doing mm-hmm. or what's important to you. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that that you could probably do that, and maybe you you this is what you meant, but you can do that as an individual, but you can also do it as an organization. Yeah. And uh, as an individual, you know, it could be looking within your company or even outside your company with a coach, with an association. Um, you know, with a, a friend or a colleague that might be in some type of similar industry, but has a different perspective. For me, this would be you um, <laughs> because you're in a whole different, you know, a city and we do the same things ish, but not, you know, we do it for different types of people and companies. So having that person might be key to getting out of your own way and, and getting those additional perspectives. 
Thanks to No BS Brass Band for the banging show music. Check them out at nobsbrass.com. And subscribe on your favorite podcast player or follow us on Facebook to get the newest failures delivered right to your ears. And may your failures be spectacular.